Welcome to Mammoth Community Christian Church. I say this often, but this is why we were created, to do this together, to worship our Lord, to be in his presence as his people. This is the meaning of our lives, and it's the privilege of our lives. Well, this morning, I have the privilege of introducing an old friend of mine to to preach God's word to us today. Pastor Andrew Zakari and I lived on the same floor in Alexander Hall at Princeton Theological Seminary for at least two years, right? And I know him as Andy, but but to you, he's Pastor Andrew, And, and he and I were on the same floor, and then during that time when I was uh, just working up the courage to ask Bonnie on a date, and, and you know, I, I was uh, reaching out to Bonnie, seeing if she'd be willing to date me, she and a- Andrew, Pastor Andrew, were serving an internship at the same little Presbyterian church up in Edison, so they carpool up together, and I think, I think Pastor Andrew put in a few good words for me, so I, I owe him a lot, and he's just a dear friend for many years, and, and he serves at Stonehill Church in Princeton, a very well-respected evangelical church here in New Jersey, so let's warmly welcome Pastor Andrew. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Uh, Pastor Nathan, it's um, so glad to be here uh, with you and, and Bonnie. Uh, my worlds are converging as I come up here this morning because I actually grew up right down the road, and, and that's where I, my childhood home is. In fact, my parents are with us today, worshiping with us as, as well. Uh, I used to go sledding down uh, the AT&T hill on snow days. We used to walk up across the tracks, and uh, we, would, we would spend a lot of time in this area. And that's the first time my parents have ever heard I crossed the railroad tracks. So, <laughs> Well, thank you again for your warm welcome. And uh, I want to get started uh, today by looking at a quote, maybe. Okay, great. comes from the Archbishop uh, uh, J.C. Ryle from the 19th century. He says this, True Christians not only have peace of conscience but also war within themselves. They are known for their inner warfare as well as their peace. And we're going to be looking at a psalm this morning, Psalm 73, but I really want to spend just a couple moments thinking about why God has given us these psalms. In part, it is to give us words about this inner warfare that we often experience within ourselves. So for instance, Psalm, 70, uh, Psalm 42, 5, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Sometimes as Christians, we have deep turmoil within ourselves. But at other times, we have clashes, not only with ourselves, but with God. Consider Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, what's really surprising as God's people is that the Bible is meant, among other things, to display God's goodness to us, especially in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the Word of God. But these divinely inspired psalms aren't secret journal entries that are tucked under a pillow. These psalms that protest uh, and, and, and lament and how the world is and, and the struggles in our relationship with God, they're not hidden away from the community, but rather they're the songbook of the community. 
These psalms are the poems that God's people would recite at feasts, uh, share around table during meals. These psalms that expose our deep struggle with God are front and center. In fact, if you were to give someone a Bible and they were to open it up, the first place that they would probably happen to fall upon is in the psalms. And so we have to ask ourselves, does God want us to have these psalms in which the psalm writers are even questioning God's goodness? And the answer is yes. God wants us to have these words. Because when you get beneath the surface, these psalms and others like them actually reveal just how good and gracious God is. And God wants us to have his presence, his powerful word in every season of life. He wants us to have these words when our emotions are so strong that we can't even come up with the words to say to God. He wants us to have words when we feel far from him. And God wants us to even have words when our negative emotions are directed at him. You know, we read this wonderful promise in Philippians that God will supply for all of our needs. And that includes our emotional needs. When we're going through it, when we're having a rough time spiritually, many people will say, you shouldn't have such thoughts. You should just believe more or try harder. But God's approach is different with us. He doesn't stand above the pit that we've fallen into and say, shape up or get out or do more. Instead, what God does, what we especially see in the Psalms, is that he jumps down into the pit with us and he meets us where we are. He rescues us from the place that we have fallen so that he can take us to the place he most wants us to be, which is near him, which is close to him. So this morning, if you are in the pit, that's exactly the place that God wants to meet you. Let's look now to Psalm 73. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, your copy of God's Word. I'm going to be reading the entire psalm this morning. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. And they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, 
It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. This is God's word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So I just said that the Psalms are the poetry book and psalm book of Israel, but today's psalm is actually a triple feature because it's a mini story that we get just within this one psalm. Taken at face value, this is a psalm of Asaph, who was um, a choir director in King David's and King Solomon's court. He was a worship leader who led God's people in worship each week and on special feast days. So today we're looking at how God brings a person, even a mature Christian, from a place of doubt to delight. I want to look at this passage now together. We read in verse 1, Asaph begins with a confession of faith. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In other words, to those who not only believe God from their heart, but also obey God in their lives, God is good to them. But Asaph is not always sure of that reality. Because what he does next in verses 2 and 3 is admit his doubt. He says, he nearly fell away from faith because he saw the wicked prosper. You see, the neighbors around Asaph who don't follow God, they live prosperous, healthy, and successful lives. Year after year, they wake up in the morning And they put their head down at night, and they live their lives without any relationship to God whatsoever. They act as if God doesn't even exist. So that we can kind of get a sense of, sorry, this mic is, I'm in a wrestling match with it. It's okay. I'm winning sometimes. To get a little bit of a sharper view of what Asaph is talking about here, let's, let's consider this in our context. Many of our neighbors... Many of our friends that we go to school with or go to work with, many of the people that we know around town, they don't live with God at the center of their lives. Maybe they have no thought of God at all, or worse, they actually actively oppose what God stands for. And when they go to school, they get better grades, 
They make the sports teams. They get into better colleges. They are more attractive. They're more popular. They're more handsome, maybe. And then later on in life, the good fortune just seems to continue. They get better jobs. They get higher salaries. They marry well, have successful kids. They travel around the world. Their health is intact. And that has not always been your experience as a follower of Christ. Because as best as you know how, you live for God, you pray, you give generously, you attend church, you read the Bible, you serve others, you share your faith. And despite all your faithfulness to God, you look around and you say, people who live without God seem to have it better than I do. And that's not fair. That's Asaph's hang-up in this psalm. And I don't think he's the only one who thinks that way. Asaph is envious of unbelievers. To borrow the words of the philosopher Rebecca de Young, Asaph is bitter because others have it better. That's envy. We are bitter when others have it better. And the thing about envy is unlike other sins like gluttony or lust or anger, envy has no satisfying aspect to it at all. To put it another way, if you have an extra helping at Thanksgiving, like we all probably will in the next couple weeks, or indulge in lustful thoughts, or express anger to get our way in a situation, there's some satisfaction in that, in the immediate moment. But envy... Unlike those other sins, there is nothing satisfying about that physically or emotionally. It is bitter to the last drop. Envy depletes our joy with God. You see, years later, after Asaph, you can imagine God's people when they were in captivity to Babylon. And they looked around and they saw people that worshipped many, many gods who opposed the God of Israel, the creator of the universe, were living better lives, and in fact, they were held in, captive, in captivity to them. They had all the influence that Israel would have wanted. That is a tough pill to swallow as a follower of God. So the first step that we see in this journey is Asaph questions God when he is on the journey from doubt to delight. In effect, starting with verse 4 all the way to verse 15, God, he's asking God, how could you let these people off the hook? How can you just let them be? Because look at them. They're spared lives of pain. They are physically fit. They're healthy. They're attractive. Unlike the rest of us, they're even spared the consequences of their actions, either in the court of public opinion or in criminal, or in criminal court. They get off scot-free again and again. And here's the conclusion Asaph goes to in verse 12 and uh, verses 4 to 14. He says this, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Based on what you see today around our world, doesn't Asaph's conclusions hold weight? I mean, doesn't it make sense? Isn't that what your experience is on a day-to-day -day basis? 
pick any country, pick any time in history, and there's no shortage of evidence that Asaph seems to be quite right. Many who cheat get to the top. They cheat on tests, they they cheat on taxes, they cheat on their spouses. Those who are wrong remain strong. And the people who live with integrity, they just seem to sink down to the bottom. Well, if that's true, then the only logical thing we can do is to do what they did to get to the top. To stake everything for our own personal health, for our own wealth, for our own prosperity, whatever the cost. Do whatever it takes, no matter who you hurt. And certainly, don't waste your time with your head in the clouds thinking about God because obviously God is just letting this happen anyway. Maybe he doesn't even exist. That's what Asaph is saying. I'm really starting to believe this. I'm really starting to go that way. He says in verse 10, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. This life with God business, what a waste. And in fact, this is not just a fleeting thought for him in this psalm, is it? Because he says, For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. These deep struggles are what await him when he rolls out of bed. And not only that, remember, Asaph is a worship leader. He's up front leading worship week in and week out. And these are the temptations that swirl in his mind, maybe even between the verses that he's singing. He's standing right on the edge of faith. Have you ever been there? Standing on the edge of faith in that way. Well, what does Asaph do when he's at this point? Well, first thing he does is he tells us what he doesn't do. He tells us what he doesn't do. Because earlier I had said that this psalm was written by a mature Christian. And I didn't simply mean that because Asaph is a worship leader. I mean that because of what he does when he's struggling deeply with his faith. He says this in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, meaning if I told other Christians about my envy, about how I felt that faith was futile, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He refrains from spilling out his guts to others when his heart is this bitter. Now, many of us are actually accustomed to living life in this way in many dimensions. We don't actually share at all what's going on with us and other people. Other people in the church community, they don't know what's actually going on with us. We do read in Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In order to do that, you do have to share things about your life in the community of faith. But what Asaph is saying is that it takes maturity to know when and to whom you share these deep struggles with. And lately in our culture, that sort of spiritual discernment is really lacking. Recently, there was a megachurch pastor who, after 40 years, in his sermon, quit Christianity. Just got up on a Sunday morning after the reading of God's word and left the faith. Okay. That's the type of foolishness and folly that Asaph is avoiding. So instead of doing that, Asaph commits his envy 
he commits his doubts and all his questions, first and foremost, to private times of prayer with the Lord. He doesn't hold back. He offers it all up to God. He doesn't spew his bitterness on others. No matter how authentic it may feel, it is never wise to wound the faith of other Christians. It's actually antagonism against God and his people. So first Asaph tells us what he doesn't do. And then he tells us what he does. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Now, given how severe Asaph's crisis of faith is, given how low he has gone, it's amazing to think that what gets him out of this is not a burning bush experience, not a miraculous answer to prayer, but instead he goes to church. He goes to church. That is how his jaundiced eye of envy is going to get cleared up. He goes to the place where God's word is heard and his people are gathered. It is in that very ordinary event that God meets him in an extraordinary way. And when he goes to church, he gets converted again. Oftentimes in the way that we think about conversion, we often reduce it to a one-time experience where a person repents of their sins and then they believe in Christ for the first time. That certainly is conversion. But it's more than that in the Christian life. It's the entire pathway of the Christian life, we might say. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian and uh, second president of Princeton University, provided some pastoral counsel to some young adults in their faith, particularly to a young adult woman by the name of Deborah. This is what he says to her after she comes to faith. He says, Do not seek, stop seeking and praying for the very same things that we encourage unconverted people to pray for. Pray that you may receive sight, that you may know yourself, and that you may see the glory of God in Christ, that you may be raised from the dead and have the love of Christ shed abroad in your heart. Now, why should a person who already believes in Jesus Christ do that? If they already believe. Here's what he says. Those who have most of these things still need to pray for them. He's talking about mature Christians. He's talking about himself. He's easily probably the greatest American theologian. And he's saying, I still need to pray for these things. Why? Because there is so much blindness and hardness, pride and death remaining, that they still need to have that work of God to bring a new kind of conversion and resurrection from the dead. And that's the kind of exp uh, conversion that Asaph experiences. Where he goes to the place where God's word is preached. Where he hears about the forgiveness of sins afresh. Where he sings his faith. 
going to church is what brings that change for Asaph. You see, during periods of spiritual disenchantment, it is a temptation for all of us, no matter who we are, to fall away from the community of faith. But it is never a good idea to miss worshiping with God's people, whether it's here or somewhere else. Why? Because this is the place where God is going to meet you. You know, God's church attendance is perfect. God is here every single Sunday of the year. No matter who is preaching, no matter who's singing up front, God is here every single week. And if we are going to mature as Christians, we need to be in the place where God will meet us. And that's how we need to learn from Asaph's example this morning. The church, uh, many times in the early church, when they were describing what kind of community the church was, they would describe it as a hospital for those who are spiritually sick. So when we are spiritually battling or when we are not doing well in our faith, we want to be in the place where God can heal us, which is here among his people. Then in verses 18 and 19, what we get is how God starts to heal his jaundiced eye. He says this, Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are swept away utterly by terrors. You see, the problem with Asaph was that he was stuck in this moment of time. We might say he was on his Instagram, and just looking at these photos of people who are prospering and doing well, who don't live their life in reference to God. But then he goes to church, and then he actually sees the full video of what was going on with them. And it is a completely different story. It looks like the wicked are really living a good life, but it's just a dream. Their life looks full, but it's actually very empty. And God shows Asaph the rest of the story, that the wicked will eventually wake up and realize they've been living in a nightmare, that a life directed away from the purposes of God actually just leads to destruction and death. So God corrects Asaph's short-sightedness, and then he gives him an eternal perspective. And when Asaph finally sees it, he begins to realize that no matter how far down the road you may get, what does it matter if it's in the wrong direction and ultimately leads to a dead end? You see, the wicked may move far and fast, but if it's the opposite way of eternal life, that doesn't matter because we know the end. So Asaph sees the whole story. And then he starts to actually see a little bit about what's going on in his own heart. In verses um, 21 and 22, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. This is his confession before God. Asaph wanted his life to be about the same things that lost people pursued. And he realizes that the fact that he wanted his life to go in that direction means that he shared the same rotten core as those who didn't follow God. 
It was the same ailment he suffered with. As our spiritual vision matures in the Christian life, we often discover that the same sin that we detest in other people is actually very much alive within ourselves. And with that awareness, he starts to do the difficult work of repentance. And with God's help, he starts to remove the log from his own eye. So so now after his conversion, we begin to see how God begins to console Asaph. He says this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. This is God speaking. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. He starts this psalm where? Mired in questions. Heavy in doubt. And then at the end of it, he is flooded with God's consolation. You see, like us, he had been plagued with the fear of missing out, but now he sees the true delight that was available to him all along, that God's presence was with him, that God's right hand was upholding him, that God's wisdom is actually the wisdom that is guiding his life along. And that sort of joy and assurance was better than anything any of the unbelievers had. Because whatever temporary satisfaction they've had in their life that they enjoy, it can't compare to what awaits Asaph in the end of the journey. Puritan Thomas Watson says this, that when we turn to God, we have more restored to us in Christ than what we have lost due to sin or to sacrificing in obedience to Christ. In other words... To sin against God costs us something, right? To fall into envy starves our souls from what is truly good. And not only that, on the other side, when we resist temptation and actually obey Christ, that too costs us something, doesn't it? It means that for the moment we're going to lose pleasure, maybe money, time, or favor with people. And Asaph has both of these kinds of experiences in this psalm. But when he repents of his sins, he discovers that God's grace is so rich, it not only removes the bitterness of his sin, but it provides him an even greater delight in life than if he had gotten what the unbelievers had. The grace that God deposits in our lives is that rich and is that wonderful. It's far greater than sin's debt and obedience's cost. What God has for you is greater than sin's debt or obedience's cost to Christ. Psalm 63 says this, God's loving kindness is better than life. And that's what Asaph is starting to discover again for the first time. But as soon as he starts to grasp this some, he hints at a bit of a problem, and maybe you see it too that the gift of God's continual presence is too big for him to carry. The wealth of God's counsel is too much for him to use. It's all bigger than what he can handle. Maybe you've seen these posts on Facebook before, Facebook community, where there's a, there's a beautiful, brand new, full living room set, absolutely free. Have you ever seen these posts online? But it must be picked up and carried down 10 flights of stairs 
and only available between the hours of 10 a.m. to 10.30 on Monday. So here you have this wonderfully generous offer right there in front of you. But it's too much for any person to handle. And you know what that means? It means you don't get that living room set because we can't hack it. But that is not how God offers his presence. That is not how God offers his grace. And that is not how God offers his joy. No, verse 26, we read this. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God's grace is too much for him to carry. It is more than he could ever enjoy. But every last bit of it remains his anyway. It's too big of an inheritance for him to spend. But God doesn't say that I'm going to take it back from you because you can't spend it all. No, God gives it all anyway. And that's what Asaph starts to see. Do you see that this morning for yourself? Is that what your heart most wants? This inheritance that God has given us. The truth is, for all that Asaph begins to grasp, he actually, based on where he is in redemption history, redemptive history, he only sees a small piece of it. Because we currently see better and more fully the future God has for us than what Asaph could have ever imagined where he was in the Old Testament. The New Testament teaches that God dwells uniquely in the person of Jesus Christ, that he is the temple of God that God raised on the third day. But in Revelation, look at what we see here. He says, Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia, I'm coming soon, hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are going to be the very temple in which God eternally dwells forever. And that is something that Asaph could have never imagined. He was just happy to be in the same arena as God's presence. He didn't know that his heart and the hearts of God's people was going to be the very place where God would dwell, that he would be the temple. Well, when Asaph considers this in the small measure that he can, he tells us, but for me it is good to be near God, and I have made the Lord God my refuge. So even though he only saw a small measure of what we see as Christians, he wanted to draw near to God. And the question is, is that what our hearts want to do? You see, when we're in a very low point in faith, it's very easy to draw near to to TV, to scroll through our phones, to stew in our bitterness, to overindulge or find ways to numb our emotions. But instead, Asaph invites us with him to draw near to God. 
So instead of maybe streaming the next episode on Netflix, we have the courage to pick up our Bible and to pray a psalm. You pick up your phone to offer a word of encouragement to another Christian friend. You pick up a book that deepens your faith in God. You ask for prayer from one of the pastors or elders in your church. You put a song of praise on to encourage your heart. You come to church to hear God's word, to celebrate communion, even if you don't feel like it that Sunday. You see, in all these ways and more, God can bring his peace to those who are conflicted and wrestling in their souls. These acts of worship, they're not magic. They are not cure-alls, but they better position you to receive more deeply God's presence in your life until one day you with Asaph and all the believers from all of history become the very dwelling place of God. Well, we see that this psalm begins with Asaph filled with doubts and questions, but those questions are now turned to consolations when he goes to the sanctuary of God when he turns away from his sinful thinking and his eyes are open to God's ways of being and doing, his conversion deepens. And he's reminded that those who have turned away from God, their end is destruction. And whatever gifts and goodness they experience in this life pale in comparison to what God has already given him and what God will give him at the end of eternity. And that's why Asaph can conclude by saying this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Is that your prayer this week? Do you want that to be your prayer? Well, may God give us the grace to pray that when we are mired in seasons of doubts or questioning because God desires to draw near to you in such an intimate way. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, would you take from us everything that distances us from you and give us everything that brings us closer to you? Would you heal our sin-impaired vision and grant us new eyes to see the eternal hope we have in Jesus Christ? Give us the grace to do what you command until we see you face to face and our hearts are made perfectly suited for your eternal dwelling. In your name we pray. Amen.